Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Justin Bennett. Hey, everyone. Nader Davitt. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Adam Laycock. Adam, do you want to say hi? Hey, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back end without having to actually program the back end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. Now, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, so I'm a uh, software developer from Calgary, Canada. I work at a company called Verset, and we just build um, applications and websites, and we do a lot of design and consulting and that sort of thing. And I guess I was invited on the show to talk about ReactConf. Yep. Now, um, before we get rolling, uh, I did see a pic on Adventures in Angular about building maintainable Angular apps. So it it looks like you uh, have moved around a bit in your career. You do a little bit of everything, or have you moved from Angular to React? Uh, I've dabbled a little bit. It's because we're we do consulting. We do a little bit of everything, whatever the client right. needs, and so. We started with Angular, and uh, for now, we're sticking with React for the most part, but I've kind of done like a little bit of both. Yeah. It's just interesting to kind of see the the movements that people make, you know, whether they're trying to become more of a generalist or, you know, they move from one community to the other and, and sort of the lessons they bring with them. And yeah, it's really, really interesting to talk through that. But what we brought you on to talk about, so maybe we'll dive into that at the end if there's time. Um, what we brought you on to talk about is you have a post on the Verset Medium, where you talk about talks worth watching at ReactConf 2018. Yeah, so I just kind of wrote that article after I attended ReactConf. I saw how many hours of content that there were, and I realized that not everyone's going to have the time to kind of pick out the best talks and um, decide what they want to watch. And I don't, I didn't want anyone to miss anything good, and so I kind of picked out some of the best for what people should really go see if they're interested. That makes sense. Do you want to just talk to us for a minute about what it's like to go to React Conf? I know that this year was a little bit different. They uh, brought in some people I know very well, actually, to do the organizing. But yeah, what was it like? It was down in Las Vegas, if I remember right. Yeah, so it was uh, pretty close to Las Vegas. It was in uh, Henderson, which is just a half an hour drive. And so the conference was hosted by Facebook and the React team. And they so they put this all on. It's the, all the official stuff. And um, kind of about the conference, I guess, it's a uh, single track. So I was able to see every single talk, which was pretty nice because if you have a couple different tracks, sometimes it can get, um, well, you just miss out on stuff. So it was really nice to have just con- concurrent. And if you didn't want to see something, you could just step out and go outside. It was a beautiful day. And so it was just a great, great, as- great atmosphere. Lots of really smart people there. Lots of really interesting points of view. Just I 
at uh, at lunch. Everyone would sit down at tables and just kind of get to know each other and see what everyone does and bounce ideas off each other. And Justin, we had were either of you there? I was not. No. Yeah, I wasn't there either. Um, but it was held in Vegas this year, right? Yeah, in Henderson, which is yeah, just outside of Vegas. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I went about two years ago when it was in Silicon Valley area somewhere. I think it was Palo Alto. Yeah, I think uh, Henderson was a great location. It was right on uh, Lake Las Vegas. There, it was just I don't know, beautiful lake. A lot of people were staying at the hotel right there, so you just kind of go, go paddleboarding or. They had a whole bunch of activities. You could go bike riding and stuff. It was, yeah, really nice. Really so I'm, nice. Curious, I'm curious about how you all approach conferences. Do any of y'all like take notes while you're in the conference or do you just try to like listen in or how do you approach it? I go to quite a few conferences and um, I, I pretty much don't take any notes unless something really important that I want to kind of go back and go over. But um, I usually try to find out the best place to find the resources for all of the talks afterwards in one place and then go and then maybe bookmark that. Um, a lot of times people will start a Twitter thread or something that has all the links to the presenters in their slide decks. That's a pretty good way to kind of like keep all of the content together. But um, I spend about 50% of the time in talks and the other 50% of the time hanging out and meeting people. And um, I'm not antisocial, but it's kind of like I'm not very outgoing. So I kind of will... Um, try to get out of my element when I'm at these conferences and actually go and talk to people. And pretty much at all of these events that I've been to, especially in the JavaScript community, I'm sure it's like this in other programmer communities. Everyone's like, you know, always really nice and open to talk and meeting you regardless of who they are. I'm kind of the same way, except I spend a good deal more of my time talking to people than, than uh, attending the talks. I will go to some of the talks if I'm really interested in them. And any notes I take are basically, how do I find this person so I can get them on one of the shows? And that's just a function of uh, my focus. But uh, yeah, I find that talking to people gives me a much better feel for where things are at than necessarily the talks. And so unless there's some really hot topic that I know I need to understand, I usually will go to the keynotes or in the case of like the Microsoft conferences that I've been to, which I'm going to wind up going to Microsoft Build again in May. Yeah, I'll watch the keynotes online and then I'll go and meet people. And usually the other thing that happens is is then by talking to people or finding a post like Adam's post, then I'll be like, oh, these were the ones not to miss, right? And so then I'll go watch the videos. Yeah, my usual format is just kind of, I just try and see everything, to be entirely honest, because usually it's work sending me to a conference. And so I kind of try and make the Mm -hmm. most of it. And I just want to be able to come back to my team and kind of show and explain, here's what I learned. Here's all the new features to look forward to. So like, for example, for React Conf, they kind of had the hooks presentation. And I kind of, you know, if I wasn't there for that, that would have been a a pretty big deal if my coworkers had to go watch that video instead of um, having me be able to explain it. Yeah, I like to approach the like going to a conference or a talk as a learning opportunity as well. So I'm I like to speak. And it's always good to like see other people's techniques. And so I don't take a lot of notes when I go, but I always try to figure out what, what the hook is for a talk, like what the motivator is, like, you know, what's the problem they're trying to solve? How are they presenting it? Just try to distill it down into like the base information. Um, because there's not a lot of, generally there's not, it's really hard to put a lot of information on the talk and like different people approach like really dense topics in different ways. And it's always kind of, fascinating just to see people's techniques and try to learn from that. 
Yeah. So what are some of the um, the big topics that came out of React Comp? I know they announced a bunch of stuff or they talked about a lot, a lot of big features. And I know Re- you already mentioned React Hooks, but is there anything else like worth mentioning? Yeah, we did like 18 episodes on Hooks, didn't we? Or at least one or two. Basically, just just keeping up with the same flow of the actual community because that's all they talk about right now anyway. So it kind of, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like the big things this talk or this conference were hooks, obviously. That was the big big one by Dan Abramov. Ryan Florence then just kind of followed up that talk with a better description or like a more realistic use case of um, how to use hooks. There's two more talks. One was about suspense and and uh, lazily loading your app. And that was by um, Jared Palmer. He did um, that talk on suspense. And then there was also a talk on uh, concurrent rendering in React and by Andrew Clark and Ryan Vaughn. And they both kind of had, like, those are both upcoming features. Those are going to be released in uh, the next half year or so. And so those were kind of the big keynotes that were probably worth watching. Yeah, those were those were super exciting. I recommend if anybody hasn't watched those videos, definitely check them out. Yeah, I, Concurrent React is really going to change a lot of stuff, especially like data fetching. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, yeah, what exactly the, is the Concurrent React? Is that um, using suspense to fetch data? No, so Concurrent React is, um, it basically allows uh, React to render run the render methods without blocking the main thread is kind of the main theme. So it, um, if you were to be uh, scrolling or have animations running, Concurrent React allows new renders to occur while those animations and other effects continue to occur. So it prevents the UI from becoming janky. Um, so if you have like a big computation in the background, it doesn't affect what's currently going on on the page, which is going to be a pretty big deal for pretty heavy or animation intensive apps. Yeah. So is that something that you have to actually implement or does that, that just actually work now out of the box or will it work once it's available? So that's going to be uh, something that's pretty easy to implement. Just like how right now you attach uh, React to a DOM node. It's just a different way of attaching the DOM node when you create your React app and then it'll just run in concurrent mode. And so it should be really easy to implement. There's a bunch of caveats with that. So if you're doing some non, like some not super not React-esque kind of things, then you might run into some weird edge cases where it might not render properly. But I think for the most part, most simple apps should be able to just switch over to concurrent mode seamlessly. Yeah, there are things that people have to like think about, like um, caching and fallbacks and like, you know, what happens if like the data isn't loaded here yet? Or what happens if the data is like, loads faster than we want to show like a spinner or whatever like but these things are really simple with concurrent react much more simple than they are today like today showing loading states can be pretty messy and this makes it really clean so yeah totally and one thing to kind of note is that as of today there's not much documentation around this and so if you do try and go implement concurrent react in your current application it's not supported it probably going to blow up in some way. And so, and it's going to be hard to figure out because just there's no documentation on it. So that's kind of a caveat for if you're looking at it right now. That's interesting because we're almost, what, five months out from the conference? And which means that we're theoretically halfway to the next conference and we're still having, you know, 
if if you make it work, you're going to be inventing some of the way to make it work. Also, suspense for data fetching isn't really actually available yet, and I don't think it will be. Maybe by the next React Conf, <laughs> but it is something they like announced, kind of or discussed at least. Yeah, maybe that'd be it'd be interesting. Yeah, uh, Dan Abramov did that talk like a year ago about suspense for data fetching, and it's still kind of we're still waiting on it. The React uh, JS blog they posted a timeline for when certain features are going to come out. So they said concurrent mode is going to be quarter two this year, and then. Um, Suspense with data fetching is going to be mid 2019. So it could be, could be soon. It could be oh, cool. know, six months, but hopefully before the next React Conf. So are they going to be doing another React Conf next year? Because I know that they kind of like decided not to do one last year. And then at the last kind of like minute, I would say they decided to do one and it was a little bit different, handled differently than the, the previous ones were, i.e., it was like done at a different time of the year. And it was also not handled by the Facebook people, but actually it was like third, uh, sent out to a third party to, to manage. I heard they did a good job on it. But do you know if they're going to have one for sure this year? I don't think there's been anything confirmed yet. I definitely have seen, seen some rumblings on Twitter about how the React team and the Facebook team thought it was a great conference and would love to do it again. I think they're looking into it. So I would say probably yes, but obviously I'm not involved enough to say. Yeah, I can talk to Mike contacts and see if we can get people on the show to talk about you know things when they announce things but yeah i also know that a lot of these things get played close to the vest until they make official announcements so yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens but from what i understood on the other end talking to the people who organized it that things went really well and it sounded like they wanted to do it again so yeah, for sure. Have y'all actually dug into the the implementation of suspense and like, or just like any of the theory around how it works? I find no, that I like being held in suspense is how it works. <laughs> it's Sorry. it's super clever. I would say uh, they do some really interesting things. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I've done quite a bit with it actually, just playing around because I've I've created a bunch of demos like getting fetch, getting suspense to work. Um, with like GraphQL and stuff just to kind of learn it and see what's going on. And the way that they like throw a promise and then um, they it, they kind of allow it to like bubble up to the next component. And the way that they've uh, created that, that function that React Cache uses, that's all, yeah, it's super interesting. It's not very intuitive, but it works. It, it was hard for me to wrap my head around it. And I've been using React for like a long time. So I can't imagine like someone new to the ecosystem trying to figure it out. That's unfortunate. But, um, you know, so I hope if they come out with some abstraction, it, it, it kind of like abstracts away all of that, that implementation detail because I would say they're creating something that um, is already kind of solvable right now without, without it. So I'm hoping that, that this is going to be like a, um, a better user experience than what we had before versus them just kind of doing it because uh, for what other other reasons, I don't know what that would be. Yeah, for sure. I had always kind of thought that uh, exceptions were a very expensive action. And like just the idea of like throwing exceptions during rendering seemed like, or relying on those specifically to prioritize work seemed like uh, something that would be slow, but evidently not. Suspense is kind of built for slow stuff anyway, right? Because, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So I think it 
kind of fits that use case, even if it is expensive. I was talking to Jared Palmer when we were at ReactConf and he did a, his live coding presentation about suspense and it was really cool and just all the data fetching. And I talked to him after his presentation, he was saying like, there's some edge cases in there that if you run into them, it, they get like pretty weird. Like um, caching is one of the really tricky issues there because if you fetch that data and then you want to discard it, you need to have like a really well-built caching policy around that. So it's kind of an area that's going to be harder to figure out. But I think that's the reason why they put it off till mid-2019 is just so they can try and get all that figured out. And so Suspense kind of has like a smooth launch. One thing I haven't really figured out is how Suspense is going to fit in with any um, types of data architecture. Like how are you going to handle a state at a global level with Suspense because of the way that it's kind of like created it just seems really unintuitive to me, but maybe I'm just not thinking about it right. Yeah, I think that's kind of the idea around the caching as well. Like, I don't know where you put that cache or if you want that at the component level or at the global level. Like, it's, I think that's just part of the nature of why suspense is so tricky right now. Like, they announced it like a year ago and it still is a work in progress. So that's probably part of the reason why it's just, it's tricky to do, right? Yeah, I guess the cache at a global level, actually, that that kind of like makes me think about it a little differently. But that could be a way to do it, yeah. Regardless, it'll definitely be interesting to see. I'm, uh, I'm excited for the future. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I'm curious about, just looking at this list of curated talks, we've talked about some of them, but how did you pick the ones that you wanted to highlight here? I mean, some of them are kind of gimmies, you know, where there are big announcements in the keynotes, but, you know, some of the rest of these, yeah, it's, you know, why these and not some of the other talks that we're given? It was mostly just uh, whatever resonated the most with me. For example, there's a couple couple of React Native talks that they did that I'm sure were very interesting, but I've never worked with React Native. So I just kind of left them off the list because I can't really say objectively if I thought they were good or not. So I just kind of put a few things on here that I thought were really cool. So for example, the new version of Create React app I thought was pretty exciting because that's something we use at uh, Verset. And I want to kind of highlight that I thought that was pretty valuable. Even though it's just a five minute lightning talk, I thought it was valuable to see and like kind of understand the changes that they made. Yeah, that makes sense. I just thought it was interesting because there's, uh, for example, yeah, you, you mentioned what's new in Create React app, but it was a lightning talk. Like it was real short. Um, you know, some of the other ones a little less. So like SVG illustrations is not really something that's a mainstream React usage either. So yeah, some of these, I just thought it was interesting. It's like, oh, Okay, what made that one stand out? And I love that you have, you know, why you put it in. So, yeah, and so Verset, where I work, is um, a design. Like we do a design, a big chunk of uh, our work is design focused, and so that's why SVGs kind of resonated with me because that's something that I'm using every single day. And so when I see a talk about SVGs, it's maybe not the most exciting thing, like, but for everyone. But that's kind of something I use every day, and I thought that was what made it valuable. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any uh, conferences this year that you're really looking forward to? Any rack-specific or front-end-specific or just general conferences? Uh, I haven't really been looking at the list of conferences this year, but everyone I talked to has said that uh, React Rally is also a great conference that I would love to check out, but I haven't really put too much thought into where I'm going to be going this year. To me, the two best React conferences in the world are React Rally and, and React Conf. Then also... React Amsterdam would be like my third. And then other than that, there's, you know, there's now like 
dozens or even hundreds of conferences that are like in the React realm. Like I'm not exaggerating. Probably like you know definitely in the in the in the 30s, 40s, 50s at this point. So it's kind of like crazy how how big React has gotten. But there's just so many events too. It's not just in, Re- in the React space. I feel like there's so many more events now than there was maybe five years ago. I don't know if it's just because I'm more in tune with with the development community or if it, and it's always been this way, but I really feel like it, it hasn't been this way. But two of the other ones that I'm looking forward to are Chain React, which is a React Native conference, and also React Native EU, which is a React Native conference. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm planning to travel abroad this year, so I'm like thinking about maybe JSConf EU or something like that. I haven't decided yet, but... Yeah, I'm just browsing through. Um, so reactjs.org has a list of conferences that they keep updated. And there's like 20 on this list so far. And that's only until September. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot more being tacked on just kind of as they get fleshed out. Like, yeah, they're all over the world. Like there's just a few here from Iran. There's Poland, Australia. It's just like, yeah, everyone just wants to have their own conference to go to, I guess. And then I think this year, React India and React Norway are both new. I don't know if they're on there or not. Yeah, it looks like. If anyone's listening um, and they're going to be at any of these, I'll be at React India, React Norway, React Amsterdam, and AppJSConf, and uh, Chain React. Yeah, this year for me, um, I mean, I do shows on all kinds of stuff, right? So I'm looking at going to NGConf and some of the Ruby conferences. And I'm also going to two podcasting conferences. But specifically for React, this year I'm really going to try and make it to React Rally because it's. It's in Salt Lake. It's a half hour away. And then um, I'm probably going to try and make it to React Conf, especially if they hold it in Las Vegas, because that's a that's a five and a half hour drive from here. And I like staying in Las Vegas. So anyway, uh, yeah, those are the ones that I'm really looking at. Um, I'd love to go to one of the React Native conferences, but it's kind of hard to prioritize it because I can't travel every week. So as we record this, I'm going to CodeBeam next week, which is uh, Elixir Erlang conference. So. Yeah, oh, like I kind of awesome. get to all kinds of stuff. So that sounds like fun. I like Elixir a lot. So I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, I'm also kind of hoping to get to uh, RubyConf again this year and possibly Angular Connect because I'm pretty connected to that community too. So, one other thing that I'm wondering about as we look at this, because yeah, you've got the talks from React Conf. Some conferences I've been to, if you miss the hallway track, you don't miss a lot, right? You know, you'd show up to the talks. Everybody else is kind of there for the talks. For me, this is usually the larger conferences where there are so many people, it's just really hard to connect with people. And then some of the other conferences as they get smaller or, you know, they do specific things to make the hallway track, you know, a part of the conference one way or the other. You tend to get a little bit more out of the conversations and things like that as well. And knowing the some of the folks that organized React Conf, I'm guessing that they had some elements of a hallway track running. But I'd love to hear, you know, overall how the feel of the conference was and, you know, how easy it was to get to know people while you were there. Yeah. So just because it was a single track, everyone had lunch at the same time. Everyone had their breaks at the same time. So it kind of meant that if you want to uh, chat with a speaker or go make some new friends or something, you always had time to go have lunch with them and go sit down with them, which was really nice because it like really helps build those connections between the community and see what other people are doing and what they think of the talks that are going on and how they can use these new tools in different ways. And so 
it was kind of a really nice format that they had at ReactConf. It was, I think, around 600 people. So it was a good size, but it wasn't enormous. It wasn't overwhelming. And so there was a lot of different people you could just walk up to. And a lot of people are sitting out of a talk. And so you can just go step outside if you want to go meet someone out there. But yeah, they definitely made it so that they really encouraged that uh, communication and just getting to know each other. They kind of baked that into part of the conference, conference, which was really nice. That's awesome. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So what was your favorite talk? Um, Hooks was the most exciting by a large margin. But aside from the keynotes, I really resonated with um, the talk by Thomas Ehrlich. He uh, did Let React Speak Your Language, which was a talk about internationalization in uh, React. So Thomas built a Babel plugin to help facilitate the different internationalization and translations within uh, React apps. And my company is doing these different translations. And um, I thought that was a really interesting talk. That's kind of one that really hit the mark for me. That's awesome, yeah. Um, yeah, that's I, an aspect I tend to leave off my apps. <laughs> so, yeah, anything that makes it easier. Yeah, internationalization is a really tricky one to get right. And so that's kind of, every time I see something about internationalization in React, that I really try and latch onto that and figure out how can we be doing this better? And because at Verset, there's a lot of clients that come to us and say, we need to build this app with internationalization in mind. And so that's kind of like at the forefront of what we're doing. So how do you typically do that? Um, I worked on an app that had internationalization a few years ago, but it's been a while. I think we had like a, a JSON documents or JSON documents uh, or, or even objects. I forgot exactly what it was, where we kept the different uh, translations that we supported. And we would basically have like a, a plugin or library choose based on the language that would set the actual text from that document. Is that kind of approach that you've used or like what, what do you use just out of curiosity yeah so um basically a json file with all the different translations is pretty standard i can't remember the format offhand but there's like a standardized format for um doing internationalization so you can how to inject um uh, parameters into a string and that sort of thing so there is kind of a standardized format and there's libraries kind of built around that format so i think thomas Ehrlich's library is kind of built around using that format and how to easily inject parameters into your strings. And that's kind of the key part oh, okay. of what he's doing. Gotcha. And so in React, a lot of the time, it's just um, you have a, rather than writing out the text directly, you say, here's the key or here's the English language string of what I want to translate. And then when you're doing your transpilation, it will then look up that key and inject it into your application as, as a string. So it sounds like what you were doing is pretty much the same as 
what is the kind of the standard here. Cool, cool. Another uh, interesting talk that I took a look at, another lightning talk, was components as units of work. And that's basically um, the idea that not every component has to uh, render something. Sometimes if you just want to have, um, just use the components life cycles just to say, well, maybe not so much with hooks anymore, but like a component did mount or something, you can use those life cycles to perform an effect on the page and uh, without actually having to render anything. So that was kind of an interesting talk for me that I kind of thought helped change the, my perspective on how to use class components in React. Yeah, I wonder how much that'll change with hooks. Um, I mean, obviously, life cycles aren't uh, something that you need dedicated components for so much anymore. But the idea that a component doesn't necessarily have to render something to be a component, that it could you know, have other concerns, I think is still valid, maybe even in the hooks world. Because like, when you look at a component, like how things are kind of broken down and like what the responsibilities are, it's still, it's still useful sometimes to, to abstract things out a little bit more. Oh, totally. I think um, use effect and uh, use layout effect will kind of be a, maybe the alternative to uh, rendering null in the future potentially, but I think that's kind of an area that hasn't yet been explored too much. So I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out in the next few years. So at this point, what are you hoping that they cover in the next uh, React comp? I think um, the big one is hopefully going to be suspense. Hopefully that doesn't uh, get pushed back any further, but it's kind of hard to say. One of the big uh, things that they covered or they kind of the focuses of React Conf this year was um, they tried to find a lot of real world examples of React in context. And so they kind of were not necessarily just showcasing just React app. It's, it's, uh, it was apps that were doing um, Reacts that were trying to make the world a better place, that were using artificial intelligence and machine learning. It wasn't so much just saying, look at these React features. It was more so look at how React is making technology and making the world a better place. And I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective to put on it. For example, Rodrigo, oh man, I don't know if I can say his last name, Quizada, Quizada? Um, he's from uh, Mexico City and he is, uh, did a talk called React for Social Change and uh, about how he's using React, but also machine learning to try and improve public transit in Mexico City to help dispatching buses, uh, just to help people get around more easily. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective because it's not just React that he's talking about at React Conf. It's kind of how to make, improve his city and build an app, not just using React. And I thought that was kind of a cool perspective that they kind of put on that. Yeah, one thing that I hope they cover in the next React Conf is React Fire. Or uh, so there's a PR open or an issue open for modernizing React, the React DOM to kind of make it smaller and more efficient. Performance is a primary thing that I concern myself with. So seeing what they come up with there, maybe hearing something about prepack and their efforts in that area would be really awesome. You know, React is awesome, but it's not small. So like just hearing more about like their strategies for kind of optimizing there would be nice. Do you know if React Fire is going to have any like impacts to how we would be using React or is it more of a under the hood change? Um, so far as I'm aware, it's more of an under the hood change. 
but there are definitely some changes. Um, there's at least like one uh, hook or like one event change, like migrating from on change to make that on input. So there's some smaller things. I think the biggest interruption is, so they want to stop using class name and start using class. So that's, you know, that's obviously a pretty significant change, but you know, that's something easy enough to write a polyfill for, or not a polyfill, a code mod. But I think the biggest thing, like the biggest change of this is like really under the hood and it's around just simplifying the event system like the synthetic event system in React right now has a lot of like, you know, it does a lot of standardization for browsers that maybe it doesn't need to do so much of anymore. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, issues there. Like, you know, it, it could break compatibility with some older browsers, specifically older versions of IE. So, um, you know, if you're still supporting those, then that's definitely a, a concern, but I don't know. It looks really interesting. So I'm, I'm excited to see what they do there. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned Internet Explorer because um, Create React app by default, I think they've kind of moved away from supporting IE 11 or they're at least trying to move away from that direction. And so they still include the polyfills, but you have to manually pull them in. And so I think that's kind of the direction that uh, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if React kind of went in that direction, just kind of saying Internet Explorer is getting pretty old. We kind of have to drop support eventually. Yeah, IE 11 is still, it's not end of life yet, um, I don't believe. So, like, I understand definitely the desire I want to drop IE altogether. But there are still a lot of places that try to support, like, older versions of IE still, um, even though they're technically all end of life. Um, so, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we still support um, IE 11 for well, pretty much everything we build, just because there's so many people out there, so many businesses that still need yeah. IE 11. Yeah, for sure. I did government contracting for a while, and they were locked on uh, locked on IE nine, and that was a a painful existence. And even IE nine is much better than Lord help IE six. Anybody remember those days? Oh my God, those were those were rough times. Yeah. So one thing that I'm looking at is you know I mentioned your. Uh, article on uh, maintainable Angular. And I'm curious if you ever made it out to any of the Angular conferences and what you thought might have been different between the two. I've never actually made it out to an Angular conference. I really pushed hard for going on NG Cruise, but uh, that never (laughs) panned out, unfortunately. That would have been a really fun one. I basically have the same perspective that I think everyone has about Angular versus React is that Angular has just a lot more baked in. So like it has uh, the router, it has when I, when I was using it, which was a while ago, they had the module system and they had everything just kind of seemed to have, seemed to be part of a cohesive system. Whereas React is just, just React. Yeah. My experience between the two has been, it, it's interesting because sometimes I really want all the stuff baked in. And sometimes I'm just like, yeah, just let me kind of pick my own stack. And as long as it's not too hard to tape everything together, I guess, then, uh, you know, then I'm good with it. So yeah, it's definitely interesting in the approach, but I do find that a lot of the the people between the communities have a lot in common. So, uh, you know, for, for all the differences in the framework, you know, I find that we're all trying to solve a lot of the same problems and we have a lot of the same interests. So, yeah, it, it's definitely interesting to see where the different communities end up because of those things. 
Yeah, um, I definitely think there's a React could take a lot of um, suggestions from Angular, I guess, just because they do have like a lot of really good ideas there, like how they baked in observables by default. I think that's great, whereas React doesn't do that. And while you can use like MobX or kind of wrap uh, observables in, it's just having it baked in by default was a kind of a great way to kind of mm-hmm. say, this is the technology we want to use and we're going to be objective and decisive about saying this is what you, sh- you should also be using for your applications. And I kind of really like that because it kind of got me to learn a new technology and it got me to uh, really take advantage of it because it was I was kind of forced to. Yeah, that definitely seems to be not the React way by and large, though. Uh, a lot of the churn that's been, that's happened, you know, over the years in the in the React ecosystem is, you know, in part because the React team takes a hard stance on we're focusing on solving this one problem and these all these other problems are up to you to solve or up to the community. So, like, uh, I agree in part, like, I like having easy solutions that fit together well. So I came to the React ecosystem from Vue. I started in Vue. That was like more of my thing. And I liked how Vue like said, here's this like simple rendering library, but then here's also all these other pieces that fit really well that are like, you know, we're we're kind of building these things for you. You don't have to use them, but if you need to reach for a router, if you need to reach for something, it's like readily available um, and built for purpose. But, you know, at the same time, we've seen a lot of innovation come out of the React community um, because they've had to solve a lot of these problems that React itself doesn't doesn't try to tackle. And the React team is relatively small, uh, so they've been able to put a lot of time and innovation into things like suspense and hooks and, like, these things that are really dense topics that are, like, hard to intuit, but you know, become this really, you know, kind of revolutionary way of like building UI. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I find it kind of interesting how, like, for example, a router isn't baked into React. And I think, well, yeah, it does kind of encourage more innovation and it encourages more people to write these libraries. But kind of the go-to is uh, everyone just uses, uses React Router because it just seems like the right one to use. It has the most support. And so it kind of still has that kind of same end result that everyone's still using the same thing, except for the people who have weird use cases and need to go find their own router or something. And so I think even though they do have these, do they do like the React team focuses on the core thing and the community builds the rest, there's still a lot of these packages that are still just the de facto go-to. And I think that, well, that doesn't like stifle innovation or anything. It kind of encourages people to get, hopefully encourages people to get involved in building their own packages. but. Yeah, I think it it kind of has a similar end result. Yeah, I definitely don't. I agree with that. It's uh, you know there are always trade offs. <laughs> yeah, we've been um, using Reach Router a lot recently, which is uh, I think React Training or no, not React Training. Uh, yeah, Ryan Florence who used to be part of React Training. Some something going on there, but yeah, he's um, he built this new router, which is really cool and exciting, but it kind of has a couple of caveats, and so it's kind of been a hard transition between do we want to use this new router, which is a lot thinner and cleaner, or do we want to use the old React router, which is much more mature and has all these, is much more stable. And so that's kind of a interesting situation we've been dealing with. 
Yeah, we actually use the found router uh, because it has a relay hook, or a relay plugin. Um, so RC is really heavily invested in relay. So uh, React router didn't really work out of the box with that, but found does a really great job. So yeah, I mean, it just goes back to like there being no official solutions. So there's a bunch of people who like tackle these things in a bunch of different ways. But it can be really beneficial because, you know, there's a wide swath of the community that, you know, tackles problems in, in many different ways. Like, especially, you know, if you're using GraphQL, maybe you use Relay or maybe you use Apollo or whatever. And, you know, some these approaches aren't always compatible. And it's hard for one library to support all things, right? That's, that's a really hard sell. So. Yeah, and I think that's kind of probably something that the Angular team struggles with, I imagine, is that they kind of, have built all these base packages and now they have to maintain them and deal with all these issues and bug fixes. And that kind of would take away from the time building the core angular, I imagine, which must also be a frustration, but I don't know. They have quite a large group of people working on it and they've got the work divvied out pretty well. So generally what will happen is if there is a slowdown in any one area, it'll be on one of the peripheral things. So Angular material will get released a little bit later than Angular or, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, generally what, what I've seen in the Angular community is that some of the rest of this work will come along after they release a new version of the core Angular. And uh, the nice thing is, though, is that Google tends to use a lot of the, I guess, edge uh, versions of Angular. And so it's still pretty stable, even if it's not, um, you know, general release. But yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how that works too, because you know React, as you said, is so tightly focused, and then you have all the other pieces that if Facebook does support them, you know they're kind of on, on their own team or they're they're kind of moving along independent of React instead of tied to a particular version of React. So yeah, that's uh, something I've been reading about as well. Is that um, I think that's why React has such strong backwards compatibility is because they don't want you to do any breaking changes because then Facebook is going to be having to upgrade like their enormous code base all to React 17 or something. So like they've been doing a lot of small incremental changes that still include backwards compatibility. So they can still use all these new exciting features like hooks and possibly concurrent React, but they don't have to go code mod or go rewrite a whole bunch of code to change their existing code base. Have you... Uh, heard about how the Google team manages Angular versions. I'd be curious to see how they would handle upgrades because that seems like a, a much trickier process if you have breaking changes every six months or every year or so. Yeah, so uh, one of the newer things, I know this isn't an Angular show, but it's always interesting to compare. So the Angular CLI now has an up, update or upgrade feature. I can't remember which keyword it is. I mix that up on like everything that has both. <laughs> it's like any, but anyway, so you can just run the ng update. I think it's update because ng upgrade is the is still the upgrade utility from Angular JS or Angular version one to Angular version six, seven, whatever version they're on now. So yeah, so you just get in and you just run the ng update, and uh, it will actually go through and update all the versions of everything, and you know, and try and keep the compatibility there with the new version of Angular. So. I'm pretty sure that React releases patches, you know, in a similar manner. And so, it, yeah, you just apply it and 
you're off to the races. So unless you're doing something really out there or you have some custom library that you've pulled in that you've uh, locked in too tightly to a particular version of Angular, then you should be okay. And generally the breaking changes aren't that drastic. It hasn't been so insane that, you know, you have to move one way or the other. And lately, the big change that they've been talking about is Angular Ivy, which is the rendering engine and, you know, some aspects related to that. And in a lot of ways, most people probably won't feel it one way or the other. It'll just be more efficient. And your, uh, your build size will, you know, it may be smaller um, in some instances. It opens up a whole bunch of possibilities moving forward. And so... Yeah, they're they're reworking a lot more of the internal stuff that you're probably not going to touch with your own code anyway. So we'll see, you know, over the next year, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And then we'll start seeing things open up in other areas that they kind of designed to open up um, because of these changes. So over the next little while, you're, you're probably pretty safe. But yeah, generally, it's not that much. You know, you're not leaping forward a ton. Um, you'll see the leaps forward in some of the supporting libraries and things like that. That's interesting. That's just a interesting perspective to have about how Angular works because they've been out of that area for a while. So it's kind of interesting to see how, yeah, the, it, it, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal, which is kind of nice. Yeah, Angular JS to Angular or Angular 1 to 2 was a big leap. Angular 2 to 4, much less so, but was still a move. But since Angular 4, upgrading has not been a major undertaking in any sense. So, yeah. And the last, I think the last two updates that you've been able to get publicly, yeah, you just fire up the CLI and tell it to update and it will work or very close to work depending on how much custom stuff you have. All right, well, should we do some picks or is there anything else we wanted to cover? I think that's it for me. Before we do that though, Adam, if people want to find you online, where do they find you or your stuff? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, A.T. Laycock. I don't tweet much, though. Not very exciting. I'm on GitHub at under A. Laycock, L-A-Y-C-O-C-K. I have a personal website, which is adamlaycock.ca. And on Medium, I'm at adam.laycock. And that's kind of the areas where you can find me if you really want to. Cool. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, well, let's do some picks. Natter, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so um, lately I've been blogging on Dev.2. It's a blogging platform that's kind of like specified for developers or specific for developers. It's, it's very similar to Medium, but again, it's kind of like focused on developers. So if you want to follow me there, I have uh, my profile there, Dev.2 slash Dabit3, D-A-B-I-T in the number three. And um, yeah, so I would definitely check it out. Awesome. 
Justin, how about you? Do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So I've got I've got three things. One, there was this uh, tool trending on GitHub today that I thought was really cool. It's called Code Crumbs. So it parses your code and builds a kind of an explorable map. And you can have these specialized comments in your code to like raise things. So it, uh, it just gives you a good way to get like a high level overview of your code base. And you can have like different code crumbs to like tell different stories or whatever. I don't know. I thought it was neat. Second, uh, so at Artsy, we use TypeScript a lot. And most of the time when you're using TypeScript, you use TSLint. Um, but news uh, in the open source world is that TSLint is being deprecated and we're all going to consolidate on ESLint. So that's awesome. Good for the community to all be behind one tool. So I'm excited to see that start moving. And last thing, so Artsy was unfortunately the... A recipient of a DDoS attack last week, uh, and it kind of took up a lot of my time. Um, uh, and kind of in the meantime, I found a great Express compatible package for Node called Rate Limiter Flexible. So it's a, a rate limiting middleware um, that's kind of designed to be very performant. Um, a lot of like customization, uh, you know, like set like global rate limits for your entire application per process rate limits fallbacks for things like it's it's really really awesome and i'm gonna do a, a write-up on the rate limiting like solution that we came up with but yeah that's that's my picks awesome this week uh for me i've been focusing less on the code stuff and more on the podcast stuff one of the things that i've been spending a lot of time in is notion notion.so um, it's kind of a blend between a wiki and, I guess, sort of Google Docs, collaborative docs. Um, so you can add, like, tables and things like that to it. Not quite to the extent that you can put, like, formulas and stuff in, but for everything else, it's 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 pretty awesome. So I'm going to pick that. If you have, like, a team where you need to collaborate on documentation and things like that, it is really nice. A few other picks that I have just related to that. I just listened to a book called Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Of course, I'm listening to the 50th anniversary edition. So, you know, this is kind of an older book, but it's got a lot of great ideas in it. If you're team lead or you're trying to make a difference on the team you're on, or even if you're just an individual contributor, there are a lot of terrific things in there that I just recommend that people check out and uh, get involved in. So. Uh, he'll walk you through how to solve problems and how to essentially just be more effective and more productive. So I'm going to pick that. And uh, lastly, I believe this episode will come out after the episode that I'm going to pick on JavaScript Jabber. But I had a friend of mine, Manny Vea, who I talk to every Friday. If you want to listen to uh, he and I and a couple of other guys who all used to be developers and now run a business of some kind, um, entreprogrammers.com Ent- like entrepreneur entreprogrammers.com we talk about all kinds of stuff there and uh, anyway I had him come on Ruby Rogues and then on JavaScript Jabber and just talk about being productive and it was awesome uh, just tremendous advice great stuff essentially what he did is he went and read like the top 50 productivity books and then he did book summaries for all of them on video and you, you can go buy these if you want. But uh, what came out of it was that, you know, bringing him on the show, he could basically say, look, you, we've got these strategies and 
these are the books that it came out of, and this is the background of it. And it was really, really interesting just to dive in. And I know a lot of people out there are looking to get into programming or looking to enhance their career. In a lot of ways, you know, just upping your effectiveness or productivity is a terrific way to go. So anyway, all these picks are kind of around that. And the, the Notion.so is essentially where I'm writing out the processes for managing the podcasts. And so that's another form of productivity that we're taking there. So yeah, anyway, uh, lots of picks and lots of ideas. Uh, Adam, do you have some picks for us? I do. So you had Kent Dodds on your show the other day, or a few weeks ago, I guess, a few months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And he put out a blog post recently about um, titled, Please Stop Building Inaccessible Forms and How to Fix Them. And I thought that kind of really hit the mark with me because making the web accessible is hugely important. People operate browsers with screen readers, with uh, keyboard only, they can't use the mouse. And just using these basic accessibility features is super important to a lot of people. And so I think that this article is just one of those little accessibility fixes that is going to be really valuable for a lot of people. And it's, it's worth giving it a read, just even if you already know about how labels work, it's just have a glance over, make sure you're doing them right. I also just finished reading a book called uh, Clean Architecture by Robert Martin, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's kind of a baseline programming book, but I think that, or maybe not baseline, but it's like a very good programming book about how to architect a piece of software. And while it doesn't directly apply to React, because it's, it is uh, more about object-oriented software, I think it's there's still a lot that uh, can be taken out of it and put into React applications. And I found that to be a really good read as well. And uh, my last pick, I just kind of got to shadow myself. I wrote an article called um, Don't Eject Your Create React App. And I just kind of thought I wrote a good article. I want to bring it up. Nice. Very nice. Robert C. Martin or Uncle Bob Martin. He's one of my favorites. And it's funny because you're you're picking a book and it's like, hey, it's this architecture book and it's out there. But a lot of times what I see is I see people that get in and they they know how to build stuff in React or build stuff in Rails or build stuff in whatever, right? Whatever language or framework they're in. And when it comes to actually writing good software, nobody taught them those fundamentals. And so they wind up learning that the hard way by having tightly coupled code or running into, you know, oh, well, if I had arranged this just a little bit differently or used this design pattern, which is all sort of basic stuff that you'll pick up along the way, things would get a lot easier. And in in a lot of cases, it's easier to read a book about it and then kind of absorb the ideas than it is to go and bang your head against the wall when you have to refactor a complicated system without breaking anything. So yeah, I I highly recommend people go check out Bob Martin's books, you know, and, and a few other people I'll just throw in there that are also some of my favorites to read are Michael Feathers. He's got a lot of great stuff. Kent Beck, if you're uh, looking for sort of uh, practices and you know ideas on how you could do things a little bit differently in, in within your team and, and how you code, um, but he's also got books about ideas on how you arrange code as well. And a lot of his books are in small talk, which makes it all the more fascinating because you read it and then you're going, I, I could really apply this to something that's very much not small talk. So anyway... Sorry to pile on your pick, but I I think it's important for people to go and continue to learn. So, Oh, totally agree. 
Yeah, definitely software architecture in general is a topic that more people should be broadly interested in. It's a deep well of information, but there's there's a lot of things that tie back to your like day-to-day work. And I, I definitely, definitely highly recommend it. So there's a there's a software architecture conference that goes on that's hosted by O'Reilly uh, twice a year. Once, I think it's in New York and once it's in Paris. So I went to that last year in January and it was probably one of the most like informative and useful conferences I think I've ever been to. So I definitely highly recommend, you know, that to anybody who might be interested in learning more about software architecture. Nice. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Adam. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will be back folks next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.